very liberating teaching, amen? And that's something we're, we're going to bring to the world around us. And uh, Pastor Joe, I'll just say about him, he's been on this at least five, six years, if not more, that I have observed him uh, deeply committed to studying uh, this subject, uh, looking at it from all the different angles, and just getting to the bottom of Scripture. So we'll look forward to um, hearing that word from Pastor Joe. Let's give it up for our visionary leader. All right. Man of God. Yes, uh, the subject that we're going to discuss today has actually been lost in modern-day Pentecostalism, especially in the Assemblies of God, which uh, this Bible college is based out of. And so if you were to talk to most of those in the Assemblies of God today about what we're going to discuss right now, they may think that it's an adherent uh, a doctrine, that it, it is some type of a heresy, that it's, it's aberrant, I think is a better way of pronouncing that word. And they would say, wow, this is strange teaching. What are you talking about? But what would you do if I, uh, what would they say if I told them that the founders of Pentecostalism in America, the reestablishment is what we would say, at Azusa Street all believed in it. Entire sanctification was not even an argument to them. It was whether or not you needed a second baptism to receive it. That was their argument. Uh, the Pentecostals mostly came from the Wesleyan movement. So we owe so much to John Wesley, and so we ought not to brush over his thoughts of Christian perfection and entire sanctification and treat them lightly. Now, I was brought up under good teachers like uh, Pastor Anthony Freeman, who helped me understand these things, and he actually had great insight to defend the Assembly of God position of progressive uh, sanctification. So I was given both entire sanctification and progressive sanctification under the Assemblies of God and uh, was, was taught that correctly. So I can't say that I was naive to the subject, but I have fallen on the other side. I don't agree with progressive sanctification. I fall back to uh, entire sanctification. But here's the deal. Most of the arguments that I was given when I was in Bible college dealt with the second baptism being needed for the entire sanctification. And that's where the Wesleyans and myself part. But the modern Pentecostals, uh, uh, you know, when they first uh, got into their uh, beliefs of Pentecostalism, when the modern movement came up, they accepted it and added a third baptism. So it was said like this, are you saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost? The Wesleyans believe that when you are saved, you are taken out of the wrath of God, justified, etc. Then you needed a second baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which sanctified you and made you perfect in Christ. When the Spirit began to fall and they began to speak in tongues, they then said there's now a third work of the Holy Spirit, first in regeneration, then in sanctification, now in empowerment, spiritual endowment of power. So the Assemblies of God began to fight with that as they formed as a denomination, and they said, no, we only see the second baptism is for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the first move of the Holy Spirit in salvation includes sanctification. But here's the thing. It's an ongoing work unto perfection, but it never completes until you go to heaven. Well, this is where you have William Durham, a, a minister from Chicago, actually going to Azusa Street and making enemies with both sides. Now, Assemblies of God came afterward, but there were some people starting to creep in like this, saying that entire sanctification was not possible. And so Durham said, no, it is possible. But then he went to the Wesley and said, but it's not the second baptism that does it. It comes at salvation. So you are saved and sanctified by the first work of the Spirit, and then the second work of the Spirit is endowment of power. Well, William Seymour did not like that and locked him out of Azusa Street, not because he was denying entire sanctification, but because he was denying that it came from that salvation instead of a second baptism. And so, gentlemen, make sure this board is wiped clean next time, okay? Can I get an amen? Thank you. So once again, you would have the Wesleyans say it comes at a second baptism. You would then have later on the Assemblies of God say that it's progressive. 
Parham fit right in the middle again here, and he says, yes, you are entirely sanctified, but it comes at salvation. And this is the belief that we hold to today. You can look it up online, William Durham, or you can look at under, and, and you'll see a Wikipedia article, and also the finished work. The finished work was the name of the doctrine that he set up. Now, this was very prevalent, uh, prominent rather, with the Assemblies of God when they made their first 16 fundamental phase uh, uh, statements. And this is the only thing that they ever changed over time. Their definition of sanctification. Their first doctrine on sanctification in the 16 fundamental phase gave way to the belief of entire sanctification. And this would also come in line with the church of God in Christ and the Nazarenes who believe in entire sanctification as well. I have tried to research the church of God in Christ on this, and I can't really get a, a clear footing from their website, but I would assume that they would still believe in entire sanctification as well well. But the Assemblies of God under Stanley Horton, who I love, which is the famed Assembly of God theologian from Harvard, one of our dearest Pentecostal theologians that we've ever had, he actually wanted to change this to be more progressive in its language. And then he participated in a book which had the four views of sanctification. And that's a very helpful book to read. Stanley Horton is a contributing author of the four views of sanctification. There is a Wesleyan in there but they don't really hold to what Wesley did. They have a, a different view of it, not as hard-lined as what we would have. So I wish there would have been someone really like us to go against what Stanley Horton was saying. In all due respect, I was friends with him on Facebook, and he helped me uh, a lot through answering questions. So this is an in-house debate, by the way, we're discussing among ourselves as Christians, and predominantly, especially the spirit-filled people, really need to have this discussion. It's been long forgotten. And so Stanley Horton, to his credit, once again, the scholar that he was, and I believe that uh, Pastor Jared can totally fill in those kinds of shoes that this man had. He was just a scholar, a brilliant man, a Dr. O, Anslow, Anslow Orphelia, Anslow, how do you say his name? Ainsley Orphelia has, has filled in those shoes in many ways. But uh, Stanley Hort, to his credit, actually brought up this debate between the Assemblies of God and how he helped participate in changing it. And though, once again, like with Pastor Freeman, I have come to the other side, I appreciate their honesty and they're really dealing with the issues. Now, I believe I have a solid case. So if Stanley Horton was here today, and I wish that he would be here, because you know for me, this is not a discussion I like having in an echo chamber. These are the kinds of discussions that I love having with pastors over lunch tables, and they get annoyed with me sometimes. But I love for them to pull out their big guns. I've debated this many times with Pastor Freeman on the phone. And uh, one of my big pet peeves is now to see Assembly of God churches, Pentecostal churches, uh, having signs in their church or billboards or flyers that say, No perfect people allowed. All of our historical figures would not like this language. Wesley would not like this. Azusa Street would not like this. Parham would not like this. I don't even think Stanley Horton and the real uh, Pentecostal theologians would like that because it's not the mindset of the Bible. The mindset of the Bible is clear through the teachings of Jesus. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be holy as I am holy. And so uh, Sunday, yesterday, I preached on this to the saints, a message that you can go back and listen to, obviously, and most of you were here for it, but our listeners can go back and listen to. And so I explained this from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, the identity of the believer according to Paul. And I'll read out the New King James Version because it uses the word saint, which I like to use. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints, thank you, who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And what I did from there is I really springboarded all across Paul's writings in the Bible to show us our identity. The word disciple is used more than any other identification for Christians in the Bible, even more than the word Christian. 200 plus times disciple is used, Christian is only used a few times, and then believer is only used a few times. But after you get out of the Gospels, where disciple is used predominantly in the book of Acts, you get out of those five historical books into the epistles written by the apostles, and you find out that the term designated for the Christian is saint, and that means holy one. And so I went through this wonderful message on lifting up the identity of the believer, that once we believe we are who he said we are, we can do what he said we can do. When I believe I am who he said I am, I'll do what he said I can do. 
And so from that place of positional transformation, I can do the things of God. I do not believe in behavior modification changing my identity. I could move and live on the top of a Himalayan mountain, meditate on nirvana, walk on rice paper, and that will not change my spiritual condition. I can go to 100 conferences, read 100 books, get 100 biblical degrees, pray and fast until I'm nothing but a twig. I will be as much of a sinner as the day I was born. Behavior modification does not change your identification. Identification comes through salvation, regeneration, redemption, sanctification, etc. And so I want you to understand because you have been born again, you are a saint, therefore you can do saintly things. You have now begun to share in the divine nature of God, now you can do godly things. You have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you, you can do holy things. You are a holy person in Jesus because of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to you. What is different between you and your friend that's going to hell is that you received by faith the gift of salvation. You did not do anything to deserve it. You only get credit for one thing. Abraham only got credit for one thing, putting his faith and trust in God. Is that not what Romans 4 and 5 says? Now, we talked a little bit about Calvinism last week and how they want to say faith is a work, and you can't even take credit for that. But that's not biblical teaching. Faith is not a work of the law. So faith is a surrender of the will, a trusting in God. And yes, if we want to look at Ephesians 2, we could even, by the Greek grammar, say that faith is a gift. Though there's an argument among scholars whether or not faith is included in the gift that Paul speaks about. Is it just salvation that's not of yourselves, or is it also faith that's included in that phrase? This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, I believe since it's singular and has a different uh, ending, that it is not included in the phrase that this is the gift of God. I believe it's singular for salvation and gift is something, the faith is something separate. But even if we gave that to the Calvinists, it's still credited to us to receive that gift. It is not irresistibly given. We are not irresistibly drawn to receive that gift. If I give you a gift and you can't give it back, that's not a gift. That's called torture, punishment, something else. Now, so we don't get lost here. Let us understand who Paul considers us to be. Nine times in the book of Ephesians, he refers to us as saints. Twenty times in his epistles, he refers to us as saints. Well, at that moment, you begin to realize that that Greek word hagios means holy, pure, consecrated, dedicated to God, most holy one, holy people. And that's why in modern translations, they'll call it God's holy people. I like the more uh, traditional word saints because there's a lot that goes with that that helps you be motivated to be all that God called you to be. When you put it together and you look at it from our perspective, what we are saying about this is exactly what Hebrews 10, 14 says. Now, this is the identity of believers in Christ Jesus, not because of good works lest they should boast. They are the workmanship of Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus, past tense. God is not whittling away at me a new creation. I have been given in the present a new creation. Are you listening? I am not being whittled on to be the workmanship of God. I have been completed. The work, the work of God has been completed in me. There is a difference between identity and maturity. I am who God says I am. I will mature as I do what he says I can do. Jesus was fully perfect in a baby's body, yet the baby had to mature. Adam and Eve were perfect, yet they had to mature and discern good from evil. The born-again saint is perfect and complete, teleos, lacking nothing. No more puzzle pieces are missing. You are holy consecrated, set apart, righteous, all of that in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ Jesus, used over 20 times in the book of Ephesians. So when Paul writes, he doesn't say, to the sinners at Ephesus, to the jacked up people at Ephesus, to the half saved and half not saved, to the Dr. Jekylls and Mr. Hydes at Ephesus. He says to the saints, even in his most rebuking letter to the Corinthian church, he starts off saying to those that are sanctified, past tense, sanctified, called to be saints. You are sanctified, called to be a saint. Now live like one, because if you ain't a saint, you're an ain't. And ain'ts don't get to go to heaven. Ain'ts aren't the ones that are in the body of Christ being built up. Ephesians says the saints are being built up to the fullness of Christ, the perfect man. That is your calling, to be in the fullness of Christ, a perfect man, the body of Christ. Now, Hebrews, 
Whether it was written by Paul is another discussion. It was included in Paul's letters in the ancient manuscripts. We know that it has much different language and grammar than Paul's letters. It doesn't have the same introduction as Paul always gives. Here's my take on it. It is either Paul's letter edited by somebody totally different than him or one of his sermons that are simply just put out as a sermon and then they kept it and then put it into the Bible, but it was never edited and written the same uh, like the rest of them are. So the way I preach and the way I write are a bit different. It could be that for Paul, just someone else edited it that just never had done it before, and they just wrote very differently, or it could have been a sermon like a track going around, and it was worded different, or at the very least, this is a fellow uh, um, traveler minister with Paul. This letter is heavily influenced by Paul. So some people might think it's Apollos, the great preacher that was trained by Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts or somebody like that, maybe Barnabas or something. But this is a heavily influenced book of Paul if it's not from Paul himself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says it like this, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are made holy. There you have Christian perfection and entire sanctification right here. Okay? Entire sanctification means you are fully cleansed inwardly from all sin. Write it down, students. Entire sanctification. Entirely and completely cleansed from all indwelling sin. The presence, the power, and the penalty of sin has been removed from the believer's spiritual soul. We will get to the flesh if we have time. But we believe in entire sanctification. This is a doctrine that explains what happens in the soul. Sanctification coming from the word holy, to be made holy. When we look at the NET, it puts made holy in the past tense as a definitive work instead of being holy as the NIV and other translations do. Now, we could argue over the words there in the phraseology. The interpreters, or the translators, rather, of, he, uh, of the NET is Daniel Wallace, probably one of our best. Now, I disagree with him at times, so I don't want to build him up and then have to disagree with him at other places. But here's the reason why I take his translation here is because I believe it does justice to the context. As I said, the NIV says, who are being made holy. So it looks like it's continually ongoing, that the entire sanctification has not happened. The perfection has. There's no way around that. I'll get to the definition of Christian perfection in just a moment. But just to clarify this verse and why I believe it states both. Now, as I said, the NAT puts it in the past tense, made holy. It's already done. Now, at this point, we could go back and forth, back and forth on the verbiage of it, but I think the context itself will clarify what tense it is in. When you bring it down in the same chapter to verse 29, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. The context, as you will see not only here, but let's turn to Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Corinthians, is sanctification is always a past tense event in the believer's life. Any place where it looks ongoing or present is either speaking some way about what God does in the believer's life as a cleansing from sin, or it's mistranslated, as I believe, there in that context. But the other one of the continual work of God doesn't mean it wasn't done the first time. It just means God is continuing to remind, refresh, cleanse what the believer already has. Now, I'll talk about that later, but that would be in Thessalonians. May the God of peace sanctify you fully in your body, soul, and spirit right there. And that may seem like it's in the present and ongoing, but that doesn't take away the reality I've already been sanctified because every other place it is past tense. Now look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. 
here we have the word sanctified used again to the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Does everybody see it? Those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be his holy people. Now, going back to this scripture, we see entire sanctification happens at salvation. And uh, let me just show you that as well. Entire sanctification being cleansed from all indwelling sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about how they have been saved, how all of these things have uh, been in their lives in the past, but not anymore. Let's just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, say starting in uh, verse 8. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. You do this to your brothers and sisters. They're bringing each other to the court. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. We'll put sanctification in the past tense again, and we'll include it at the time of justification. Look at it. And that is what some of you were, past tense, but you were, past tense, washed, past tense, were sanctified, past tense, you were justified, past tense. Do you get the verbiage there? Clearly, it is all past tense in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Entire sanctification means that it has happened entirely. You are not like, as I have shown in my images here, you are not like a progress bar progressing towards the end of completion of sanctification. Sanctification has been completed in you. It is a past tense work. You are not being progressively sanctified because you're not being progressively saved. Now, some with well intentions have tried to draw out they're systematic through the Bible and come up with phrases that sound cute and answer some of these conundrums these scriptures put them in, but these things are incorrect. One of them you will hear is like this. You were saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. You were sanctified. You are sanctified. You will be sanctified, past, present, future. That is not how the Bible looks at it. Whenever the Bible talks about being saved into the present tense, being saved in the present tense, it is referring to you receiving a glorified body and salvation being complete from body, soul, and spirit. But it never talks about your soul in the process of being saved. Your soul has been saved. When you go to 2 Peter chapter 1, one of my favorite places to preach entire sanctification from, and I actually have an entire blog on this, on your soul is saved, you see it clearly from 2 Peter from start to finish. And this is the same Peter that wrote that, uh, excuse me, in 1 Peter, this is the same Peter that wrote that you are to be holy as he is holy. Excuse me, not uh, 2 Peter, but 1 Peter. Here you see uh, with Peter, he says, This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power unto the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed. The coming of the salvation is not your soul being saved. What is to be revealed is the body of the resurrection given to you as it was to Jesus. How do I know that? Because once again, in that same context, he says, you already are saved. Continue on with me as he says to be holy as he is holy, right? Now look at this right here. It says here, uh, further down, verse 22 of chapter 1, now that you have purified yourselves, past tense, different word than sanctification, but means the exact same thing. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one of another from a deep heart. You see, that's how it works. For you have been born again. Do you see all of that has been done? Purification and born again is in the past tense. And then he will even bring up salvation. Just keep flowing through his thought right here. And I wish I had time to go through the entire thing. So that chapter 2, verse 
uh, two here, so that you may grow up in your salvation. How can I grow up in a salvation that I'm waiting to be revealed? What I'm waiting for the salvation of is the salvation of my body, not my soul and spirit. Now, continue on. He will, he will make this point about what God has done through Jesus Christ, how you are his chosen people. Now, watch this. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, all of this in the present. Now, watch this right here. Dear friends of chapter 2. Uh, verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. If sinful desires are waging against my soul, then they cannot be coming from my soul. They have to be coming from another place to wage war against it. Paul talked about this, and so did James. It comes from evil desires within, the flesh. That's why our, we are to crucify it. And Paul said we are to consider it crucified with its passions and desires. It, the flesh, has passions and desires. And so he continues to work through that point, and then you will see with me right here as I get to the word saved in the book of Peter, and I wish I could just find it here now, as I'm going through the book, and it may be now in Second Peter where he continues that thought, but I really thought it was in First Peter. Let me uh, find it right here. Saved. Somebody say saved. I'm so excited. I hate when I got to stop here. That wars against your soul. I think I had passed it up, so give me just a moment. Give me just a moment for it to be uh, brought up to you here. And as we get that ready, understand that this is the concept that your soul is saved and that that has happened entirely at the same time you were sanctified, set apart, washed, cleansed. Another word that we just learned is purified. Now I'm just going to get to saved in Peter. Uh, you know, I'm going a little bit off my notes here, but I felt led to take you through the book of Peter. So let me get it for you now because I have it verse by verse in my, um, in my blog format. So let me get it to you, and you'll see it clearly. First Peter, your soul is saved. Here, let's look at it here as I go through it verse by verse. Obtaining the salvation of your souls. Here we go. You have been born again. I explained that to you. Having purified your souls, I showed you that. The word purified, okay that war against your souls, and I sold you that. There we go, and then right there. Okay. Yes, so where I, where I believed, I, where I made my mistake is that I was going to show you saved in the past tense, but what I, what I built my argument upon was that you have been purified in the past tense and that you have a... Um, you have purified your souls in the past tense, and you have also been born again in the past tense. So there we go. I think that explains it. Now, I wish I could show you saved in the past tense, the actual word saved there, but I think those imply exactly what we have said. Otherwise, there's a contradiction. If I have not been saved yet in my soul, how have I been purified in my soul? How have I... Uh, how have I not only been purified, but how have I been um, able to have a war against my evil desires and the soul? And then it says right here in First in Peter chapter 4, Therefore arm yourselves uh, with the same way of thinking, for whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of their time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. How could I do any of that? unless the soul is saved. So let us go back to that, that passage here. It says that all of this has happened. Let's, let's go. I'll get to the sanctifying work here in just a moment. But it says, I have a new birth, and the new birth is given to me now. It says, by his great mercy, you have received a new birth. This inheritance is for you, and it will be revealed with the coming salvation and I believe that that coming salvation is talking about the, the resurrection of the body. For you are receiving, here we go, this is what I was looking for. You are receiving now, that's what I wanted to find, the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There we go. Thank you, Jesus. I had to go back over it again. It was right there at the beginning. You are receiving now the salvation of your soul. So is your soul saved or not? And then the implications of what I just said stand. 
Because even though it says I'm looking for a salvation to come, and so let's say somebody said it like this. Okay, Joe, you could show us saved in the past tense like in Ephesians past. It's here's the present tense of receiving now, and then there's a salvation to come. Yeah, but those are not talking about the same thing. The past tense and the present one are saying the same exact thing. I'm receiving now the salvation of my soul because I was saved then. But the one that I am waiting to receive is what? The salvation of my body, the resurrection. That's what we're waiting for. Now, uh, yeah, that's why it's all right there, being born again, et cetera. So I would have to ask somebody, if you believe you're being progressively sanctified, progressively saved, then I would have to say, how saved are you right now? Are you purified right now? Are you saved enough to be holy right now? Are you, I mean, how is this working according to Scripture? Because there is no progress bar of heaven telling you you're 10% you know, saved and 90% still of the devil. There, there is no progress bar. Everything is looking past tense or putting it towards a present tense reality. It is not a future to happen. Death, and then some people say, well, at death, then it completes, at death. But death is not your Savior. Jesus is your Savior. There is not a completing of sanctification at the physical death. All that changes at the physical death is that precious treasure you've had inside this jar of clay is released. That's it. There is not another sanctification that happens at death. You will never see that. But what happens at death when you go as a disembodied spiritual soul to heaven is you wait for the resurrection to receive the perfect body that Jesus has for you. And that's what I believe Peter is talking about. Now, as we go back uh, to what I want to actually preach on today, I want to go to what is probably the, the number one passage that people will take us to to understand Paul and his idea of Christian perfection. But before we do, let me make sure that I give you a definition of Christian perfection, an entire sanctification, reviewing again that scripture I had just read in Hebrews. For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are made holy. Entire sanctification means to have all indwelling sin removed from your spiritual soul, the power, the presence, and the penalty. Christian perfection means to share in the divine nature, having completeness and wholeness of the image of God restored and given to you. Full restoration to your spiritual soul, the image of God. He is not teasing you when he says you are now holy like he is holy. He is not teasing you when he says you are perfect as he is perfect. Look at what the Bible says in the book of 1 John. It says as uh, we can have this confidence on the day of judgment that in this world we are like Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. In this world we are like Jesus. Also Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He did all of this that we may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Are you saved? If you are saved, you are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. How many saved folks do I have here today? It says, those he also, uh, those he, pre he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, past tense, to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among brothers, many brothers and sisters. And for those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. We are glorified right now. You will receive a glorified body in the future. That is true. That is what we are waiting for. And that's where I'm going in just a moment. Trust me, I'm not running from their strongest argument. I'm running to it like David with some rocks in my hand. Amen. There is nothing that I'm afraid of that they can show you. I'm not afraid of Romans chapter 7 and all that they want to say about this that I wish I could do, I, I don't do, what I don't want to do, I do. Get set free. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ sets me free. I am free from the body of death and the law that brings condemnation. And also when they say, Paul said, I'm the worst of sinners, like as if right now he's currently the worst of sinners. He's just using grammar. Just like when I talk to people say, I'm a high school dropout. That doesn't take into account that I've now I've graduated with a master's degree. I'm just identifying with my past and the present so people can know how great God is. But who I am is a master's degree, a graduate with a doctoral studies program, right? That's what I'm doing. But I know that Paul wasn't the greatest of all sinners in the presence. Otherwise, he couldn't have been qualified to be an elder. 
How could a sinner be putting people out of the church? He's just using the grammar of the presence to express himself. And that's the same thing in Romans chapter 8. He tells you, I'm no longer that man. I am the free man of Romans chapter 8. No more a slave. I'm not the bondage man to my flesh and the law in Romans chapter 7. And now, let us uh, see that the glorification is here. That's why Ephesians says, you are seated now in heavenly places. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in him that has happened. And so let us just pause once again. Everything that I am saying is about every true believer. The Wesleyans brought forth the idea that you had to be sanctified again, and therefore if you were sanctified again, made perfect and entirely sanctified, you could say I did something your neighbor didn't, but that's not what I believe. So even those who want to argue with me and keep being little stinkers, saying that they're sinners and saints and one, Dr. Jekylls and Mr. Hyde, or what I like to call uh, the, um, the half man and half horse, What are those things called? A centaur. If you want to be a centaur, okay, we'll argue back and forth. But here's the bottom line. You still are what I say you are because it applies to you even though you don't believe it. So it's not like I have one up on you. Sometimes when I talk this to people, they go, well, you just think you're perfect and, and, you know, we are just so lowly. I go, no, you're perfect too in Christ. You're fully sanctified too. The problem is you just don't know who you are. You're acting like somebody you're not supposed to. You keep making excuses for your sin, and the Bible never gave you that excuse. You're to see your identification as a demand of your faith to believe what God said is true and cast your sin into the sea as a mountain and live for Jesus. Amen? Sin is not to be your default position. You are to be washed and cleaned and pure and holy. You are who Jesus says you are. You are called. You are justified. You are sanctified. You were predestined. You are glorified in the presence of God right now. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen? All of these wonderful things apply to you. Now, let us go into this passage that people want to bring up, and, and, and let's just go right to the, the heart of it, and then I'll work through it verse by verse. But uh, the one that they'll, they'll bring up to me probably the most And they'll say, look at what uh, Paul uh, said in in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And they'll say, here you see, it's so clear that Paul says, I am not already perfect. I'm not already perfect. Well, the first thing that I want to do is find a translation that will be honest with these, uh, the same word, teleos, because it's used in the same exact context. And so if we just go to the New King James Version, we'll just work through it together. I won't even have my notes there. I just want you to see it for yourself. Philippians uh, chapter, six, uh, chapter 10, verse 6. Now watch right here where it says, not that I've already been made perfect. You notice that that's what he says. But then look here just a little bit further down, and um, let's go to Philippians chapter 3. I want to get that New King James Version here. Or you can use the NIT any, or the NASB, anyone that's going to translate those words the same. Let's go here, Philippians chapter 3, let's say, right here. Look at what word it says is right here. I keep pushing the wrong one. Where am I at? New King James is right. Why don't I have the New King James up here? Let me use the NASB. Okay, NASB, Philippians chapter 3. Let's go further down, chapter 10. Okay, now watch what it says. Not that I I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Do you see that word perfect there? It is the Greek word teleo right there. Now watch. Go down just a little bit more in the context Therefore, verse 15, as many as are perfect, same exact word, teleos, just a different, uh, uh, um, what is that, just a different um, form, tense, thank you, tense, a different tense, same exact word. So is he contradicting himself? I'm not perfect, but those of you who are perfect have this attitude. What's the problem here? The two different kinds of perfections, dealing with the two different parts of you. There is a spiritual part and there's a physical part. Salvation touches the soul and spirit first, doesn't it? That's why I like to call it your spiritual soul. The nature of your soul is spirit. The nature of your soul is spirit. Your soul encapsulates what the Bible has called your heart. Your mind, will, and emotions, the seed of who you are. 
the substance that your soul is, is of spiritual substance. It's not of the corporal, physical world. But you were made not only a disembodied, soulical spirit. You were made a living being in a body, weren't you? A living soul in a body. When, you were bre- when God breathed into Adam and Eve, the spiritual soul animated the physical body that was once dead or not alive. When we sinned, did death only come to our spirit? It also came to our body. What must be saved? Your spiritual soul and your body. What has already been saved? Your spiritual soul. You've been born of the spirit, born again. Now, sometimes people like to say, my spirit was born again, but my soul is still messed up. Well, they don't understand what your soul is. How in the world is a spirit born again? Like, I'm a spirit and I'm born again, but my soul is not. This is now where they want to do this. And it's very simple to see how they make the air, but it's still an air nonetheless. When, ta- when Paul speaks about the flesh, he's literally talking about the body. Sarks and soma are the same exact thing to Paul. They are the five senses controlled by the brain. This is the physical body. That is what was there before God breathed. That is what wars against your spirit now. Your brain is the most complex organ on this planet. It is fully capable of coming up with instinct from its nervous system, pheromones, hormones. These chemicals work together to influence you. But you are no more your flesh than you are your stomach, a part of your flesh. You're not the part of your flesh, any part, not the brain, not the heart, nor are you the sum total of all of your flesh. You are not a body. You are a spiritual soul living in that body, right? So here's your spiritual soul, but we'll just put spirit right here. What they do is they put the soul, mind, will, and emotions towards the flesh, and they say this is what encapsulates the flesh, and the soul with the flesh is what is called the sinful nature. The 1984 NIV in Galatians translated flesh, sinful nature, Er, error. They never went back to it, and no one else has repeated that mistake since then. It is not a sinful nature by that definition. It is simply flesh. There's only one word there when you go to Galatians 5, sarks. That's all it is. You are fighting against your flesh. But when you hear sinful nature, you think it's more than the flesh. You think it's your soul, your mind, will, and emotions with your body warring against your spirit. Got a little spirit here. No, but where does the Bible from front to back put the soul? Does it put it connected to the body or connected to the spirit? When Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit, did he leave his soul in the body? No. This is what Seventh-day Adventists believe in soul sleep. The spirit is simply a breath that leaves the body, and the soul sleeps with the body then until it's resurrected. Do you believe that? No. So why do we talk about it this way? Even Pentecostals talk about it like this. My friends, if your soul is not saved, you're not saved. This is, this is old school preaching. Jesus will save your soul. Do you understand? We've been duped. We've been bamboozled. We've been hoodwinked. You've been had. Your soul is saved when your spirit is born again and regenerated. It's sanctified, washed, and cleansed. Your mind is renewed. The Bible literally said that was what would happen. You would get a new heart on the inside of you. He would place his mind in the inside of you. His thoughts would become your thoughts. These are the things that happen. Now, your soul is unique to you, though the Holy Spirit lives in you, and the language of the Spirit is thought, and the Word of God comes and speaks to you. But you are a unique soul. You are a unique spirit, spiritual soul, that God has regenerated, and yet you are in union with Him. You have been glorified with Him, seated in heavenly places with Him, yet you don't get absorbed into Him like a drop of water into the ocean. You are still a very unique soul and spirit. Do you understand? And so when people try to tell me that the soul goes with the flesh, this goes against all the scriptures. This goes against what Galatians is talking about. And since I'm mentioning it, let's just go there real quick. When Galatians speaks about this this war that's going on there, and uh, let me make sure that uh, 
I'm not losing that spot. In Galatians chapter 5, just read through this whole part and think of it exactly the way I've been sharing it with you, and it will make perfect sense. The acts of the flesh are obvious. The acts of that physical body are obvious. Now, somebody says, well, I don't still believe this. Well, my friends, why does this have to die for this to go to heaven? If this, if the soul was connected to this, then that means the seven-day Adventists are right. You don't get to go into the kingdom until the resurrection. It's not connected to your soul. It's connected, the soul's not connected to your flesh. It's connected to your body, I mean your spirit. That's why when your body dies, what goes to heaven? Your spiritual soul. Do you get saved again in heaven? No, you're just released from this body of death that Paul called. And I have all those verses here. In these notes, in the, uh, to the saints, all these things are there. Okay, I have it there in the thing I'm trying to get to. I haven't even got to the passage. I did. I got it to a little bit. It says, these are the acts of the flesh. That's what it's talking about. These are the things of the Spirit. Not my Spirit, but the Holy Spirit through my Spirit, birthing the fruit. And think of the fruit as a singular fruit, like an orange, with you know the slices of all of those wonderful things. Not fruits, plural. It's not an orange and apple. It's not like joy is an apple. Orange is, a, is peace. It's the fruit of the Spirit, singular, an orange. And each slice is something. You get it? That's the example he's using here. Kind of, you could think of a pomegranate. It has those tons of little seeds in there. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. You see, if it's crucified the soul, what does that mean? My soul is crucified. I don't do what I want anymore. I'm, out, I'm, I'm literally like a, a walking puppet. No, my flesh has been crucified with its passions and desires. Since we, the spiritual soul, live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Does everybody see that? It's clear, isn't it? So when you look at what Paul says here, look at what he says. Not that, excuse me, Philippians 3.10. Let me get to this. Lord, help me. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What does he want to attain? The resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it. What, has, what is the it? The resurrection, or have already become perfect. What is the perfection he wants? Perfection of spiritual soul or perfection of his physical body? His physical body. That's what he's waiting for. His spiritual soul is already saved. He's a saint. He's the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He's sanctified. He's washed. He's purified. He's justified. But I press on that I may lay hold of for that which has also laid hold of me by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet. I haven't got the end of the story, the resurrection. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the goal? What is the prize? The goal, the crown of righteousness given to him with the resurrected body ruling and reigning with Christ. That's the goal. That's what we're all looking for. Amen? The resurrection. He was a good Jew. He understands the Bible. The Messiah is going to rule and reign. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect. And some people want to translate mature, as many are mature. It's not just a mindset. The perfection that are, you are now is the perfection of your spiritual soul. It's an identification of inner perfection. As many as are perfect have this attitude, and if anything, you have a different attitude, which a lot of people have a different attitude, because I'm not perfect, I'm not perfect. If you have a different attitude, Paul says, God will reveal that to you. He's able to do that. However, let us, look at what he says, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. He says at the beginning, I haven't attained something. What did he say that he had not attained that he wants to attain? The resurrection from the dead. What does he say he has already attained and he must live up to? Perfection, inner perfection. Do you get it? The perfection to come is the perfection of the resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. Paul says it like this. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. What is the perfect there? 
the resurrection, when you see him face to face and are fully known as he is known. Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Everybody, uh, you know, the Calvinists, whatever, they love to go there and say that that's how we are. But they forget to read the prior verses and the after verses. They forget to read Romans 7 before he gets into the what I want to do, I don't want to do, etc. And to Romans chapter 8 where he says he's set free. Because what he's building up here is what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. The soma. Body, soma, Greek. Flesh, sarx, Greek. Talking about the same thing, the five senses. The actual body that suffered death because of Adam and Eve and is corrupted now. Do you understand? Who will deliver me this, from this body? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature. That word, these two words do not exist here. What is sinful nature right there? Look, I'll run right over it. Sarks, right here. That's all it is. That's all this is. There is no two words here. There is one word, sarks. My sinful nature, sarks, flesh. Do you understand that? It shouldn't even say sinful nature. It should say, so in my mind I'm a slave to God's law, but in my flesh a slave to the law of sin. But he doesn't leave it there. He already said, I'm glad God's going to rescue me from this body, but it's almost like now in my soul I'm still a slave. I'm still a slave. But he, he completes it now. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit which is in me who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death that I was a slave to in my body. My soul's already free, and when I die, glory be to God, I'm coming back free in a brand new resurrected body, complete and whole. Amen. Spiritual, solical salvation, then physical redemption. That's what we're waiting for. That's the perfect to come. Paul, once again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, 1 Corinthians 15, 53, talks about it clearly, what he's waiting for, what he knows he has to still have. It says, we will be changed, raised imperishable, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're waiting for. So as many of you who are perfect live like this, live up to what you've already obtained. Paul clearly taught that the flesh was the literal body of clay that was the tent for the spiritual soul. Paul taught that the flesh, the physical body, including the brain with its five senses, is the place of ongoing temptation. Hence, its desires are to be counted as dead and crucified, Galatians 5, 19 and onward. This concept of the flesh always needing to be dealt with in an ongoing way for the disciples agrees with Jesus' command to deny oneself and take up the cross and follow him. That's the purpose of taking up the cross for the crucifixion of the flesh. That is the daily ongoing thing, but it has nothing to do with your spiritual soul and the perfection God did in an identification way. The evil desires of the flesh came up again in James chapter 1, verse 13. That's what he's waiting to be free from. Why did Jesus need to be personally tempted by the devil so that he could say he was tempted like us in all ways because his flesh would give him no temptation. That's why Adam and Eve had to approach the devil to be tempted. Their nature was perfect from in to out, spiritual and physical. We now, as fallen creatures, are tempted by the flesh. When we are born again, it becomes our enemy. We count it as dead. But Jesus wanted to be able to say he could relate to us in all ways, temptation. So since Jesus would not get it inwardly from a fallen nature, he had to get it from the devil, personally, face to face, just as Adam and Eve did. Are you listening? But he overcome it in every way. And we believe that there was more temptation than just the ones that are mentioned in the Bible. We don't know what they are, but it says he was tempted in all ways like us. And so if there's only three temptations Jesus got, that wasn't in all ways like us. But it says that he left him at that time, Satan did, for a more opportune time. So he must have came back and did other things. The gospel only contains enough words to show you about three days of Jesus' life if you broke it all down by minute by minute. But it covers the span of three and a half years. What's going on in between those times, right? You watch a two-hour movie that tells you the whole story of somebody's life, right? It took him 80 years to live it. What's going on in between there? We know it says he was tempted in all ways, Hebrews. Now, the perfect that he had not attained, that he was waiting for, is the resurrection of the body. What does he believe he's already obtained? The perfect of 
nature of his soul. That's why, as we already looked before in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, it says the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, you are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Where is the new you? Is it coming or has it come? It says, you are the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus. Created. Are you being created or have you been created? Are you being worked on or are you the workmanship of God? Because you're created to do good works. Can, can a tractor do good works if it's missing three tires, an engine, and a forklift, or whatever the thing goes up and down? You can't do it unless you've been equipped to do it. And that's what God says you have been. You have been equipped for the good works, and the church is there to keep equipping you. So, yes, if there's things that are ongoing, it's maturity, it's growth, things like that. But the inner identification of the soul is righteous and sanctified. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Pretty much quoted that word for word. Amen. I'm flying through these things. I think you guys got it. Any questions before we roll out? <laughs> Did you just feel like you uh, took a sip of water out of a fire hydrant? <laughs> I know. Peter threw me off for a minute because I couldn't, I didn't have my notes, and I knew that there's, it's hard to find how that thought works, but I've already gone through it verse by verse, and so I hope that you guys were patient with me on that's the thing that I already, I'll go back and listen to myself. I already listened to both of my sermons from yesterday. So I'll go back and listen to myself, and I'll say, so you went wrong, you went too fast off your notes. If you're going to bring up Peter and step him through it, you should have had Peter in front of you, the, uh, the, uh, the exegesis of it. Then I could have taken my time to show it to you. But I was looking for saved past tense. I was looking for that. But, but the key there is you are obtaining the salvation of your souls. And it's okay if some of those things are present tense. It's a present reality that I am receiving it. But that doesn't take from the fact that it's already been done and completed, okay? I am receiving a, and I like to say it like this, I am receiving a new certificate for our tax exemption, but my old tax exemption is still there. It's still valid, right? And so the way I call, if anything is progressive, it's not sanctification, it's not um, salvation, any of that. If it's progressive, it's levels of glory, because the Bible says you go from glory to glory. And so the way I like to call this is you get those upgrades, like uh, the new iOS operating system. They upgrade, they upgrade. But it never takes away from the fact that you have the iOS. You have it. So maturity for fruit bearing always is increasing, and God is doing that as he's the vine and you're the branches. That is so true. But the vine and the branches, the more you grow, the more you grow. That doesn't mean you're a better vine. That doesn't mean like you're more of a different substance, a DNA, or whatever those things are made out of. You're still completely a vine, a branch rather. You get my point there. My son, no matter how much he grows and what he does, is still my perfect son. Perfect by his nature. And let's say it like this. If I went to Maury Povich and took a test, what would Maury say to me? You are the father. You are the father. That, I mean, that's it. It's a perfect DNA. In that sense, it is that way we are identified in Christian perfection and entire sanctification. In closing, let us look to that passage of Hebrews, our favorite passage for uh, discipleship. I got to get back the mouse here, my brother, so let me find it wherever it has been hiding. Okay, and, and when you, you know, like everybody has like their main scripture for us, uh, the discipleship scripture is um, Matthew chapter 28, making disciples of the nations. And for the entire sanctification, uh, this one right here is the money, is the money for us. Okay, here we go. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are made holy. Father, help us to believe that, to receive it, and live accordingly to what we've already obtained. Let us live up to it by your grace through faith in Jesus' name. And everybody said,